Well, good morning. It's nice to be back uh, so quickly, and uh, it's nice to see you all. Uh, you will see a lot more of myself and Julie come uh, January. Uh, we are looking forward to relocating back into Victoria, so our plans are to, to leave uh, South Australia just prior to Christmas and uh, make our way across, but uh, we'll be with you officially on the 1st of January or something like that, and for the first Sunday, which is the 7th, and we're we're delighted to be here, and uh, we'll be delighted to be serving you. Uh, Julie passes on her love. She, uh, unfortunately, is not with me this weekend. I've been over with uh, Insight for Living, and I have a couple of American friends here. So, uh, Wes, you'll need to explain rugby to them. They have no idea what you're talking about. But um, yeah, a couple of friends from Insight for Living uh, from Dallas and Idaho. So great to have you guys here um, worshipping this morning. Thanks, Hannah, for reading today. Uh, how often do we go and read an entire book in one sitting? It's uh, quite a refreshing thing, right? Uh, it's a few verses there, and I, I think the book of Jude, probably the most famous part of it, it's the end. We know the doxology there, but there is some rich truth inside the book of Jude for all of us. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, dive into that shortly. But I just thought I'd take the time. I think it would be time to, a good time just to stop and pray. It's been a tumultuous week, hasn't it, uh, across the world, uh, especially in the Middle East, especially in Israel. And uh, I think we should be on our knees as believers. And I know it's an age-old saying, but praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Why do we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Because the only peace that Jerusalem will ever see is when Christ returns. When the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords uh, returns, and that's when true peace will reign. And that's uh, a wonderful hope and a thing we should be praying for. But on a practical basis, we should be praying for a swift end to this war, that peace will be restored, and that God's purposes alone would prevail. We need to pray for the courage and strength of, uh, of those who are defending their country, protection and security of Israel, and comfort for all the innocent civilians caught up in the crossfires, both Palestinian and Israeli. I think we should be praying that uh, as believers, as, as Christians in that country, that they are about to rise up and, and really minister and proclaim the good news. Wisdom for world governance as uh, they uh, get involved with this particular issue. Strength for pastors and Christian leaders in Israel and around the world. That we may have wisdom and courage to lead uh, in fearless faith, which we'll talk about today, actually contending for the faith in the book of Jude. I think we should also be praying for the disturbing anti-Semitic displays and demonstrations that we've seen in our own country. It's not only here, but through, uh, throughout the world. Um, these, this needs to cease, this, this inbuilt hatred for, for the Jew. And obviously all people facing despair in this conflict to find hope, refuge, peace and salvation in Christ alone. There's our prayer. So should we just... Uh, Take a time to pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we know that nothing takes you by surprise. We know and we thank you that you are the sovereign Lord, 
the one who creates the heavens and the earth and all that is within it. And Father, we have been shocked by this conflict this week, shocked by the atrocities we see, by the hatred that is uh, stemmed between Israel and, and Hamas. And Father, we just pray for peace. We pray for a swift end to hostilities. We, we pray that above all that your divine plans will be fulfilled through this conflict. We pray that the name of Christ will be magnified and that in this despair, people will turn to the living God. Father, we really don't know what else to pray. We do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the certainty that we have that Christ will return. And Father, we say, Lord, come quickly. As our desire that you rule and reign in this world. So, Father, we just uh, commit these things to you in the powerful name of Christ, our risen Saviour. Amen. All right, if you've got your Bibles, I know we've had the, uh, the reading up on the slides, but if you do have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to open it to the book of Jude or the letter of Jude. And really today, I just want to give you an overview of this letter, a brief overview and I'm considering when I get back in early January that for the first two Sundays we'll dive back into Jude before we start a, a series elsewhere. But, um, yeah, so open your Bibles here and what we see right off the bat is that this is a real letter of warning. Now, warnings are designed for our good. Yeah, within our families we, we set certain warnings, right? Uh, we set boundaries for our children. We, 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 we don't want our children to be hurt, so we'll set boundaries around, about, around potential dangers. You know, we place fences around swimming pools. We put guards in front of open fires. We, some of us might put a, a safety plug inside a three-pin plug. We do our best to protect and, and care for the ones we love. I remember really vividly when we, we lived in the States for a, a period of three years, and one thing I love about the States is they go on holiday for all of summer. From about June to, to September, everyone's holidaying, and they, they get out, and, and we thought, okay, we'll, get, we'll be part of this culture, and we'll, we'll grab a couple of tents, borrow some tents, and we thought we'd go north. We lived in the Pacific Northwest, up in Portland, Oregon, not far from Canada. So we thought, well, oh, well, let's head up into Canada. Let's see some of the sites up there. And it was really interesting because um, we, we camp, we've camped in a lot of places, but not quite like Canada because the first thing you are confronted with when you, you go into a camping ground is a crumpled up esky sitting on a post. And you think, what's that all about? Well, it's a warning sign. Do not leave food in your tent or the bears are going to get it. All right, so here's a New Zealand family. The most dangerous thing we have in New Zealand is a flightless bird. <laughs> We've moved to Australia, sure, and we, we, we get the snakes and things like that, but now we're in bear country. And the warning signs were vivid. 
Well, Julie and I were quite clever about this because we had two tents. So Julie and I would be in one tent and we'd make sure that if a bear was going to enter the camping space, that they'd grab the kids' tents first. <laughs> and then our girls were quite, uh, quite good about that because the tent door had enough for three of them to sleep in. And so they made sure our son was the first inside the door. <laughs> but it was a vivid reminder of, okay, you're in bear country. And bears will like to have your food. Scripture is also full of warnings. Warnings for those who, who serve Christ. Warnings for those of us who are followers of Christ. Warnings for leaders of churches. And warnings for those who reject the life-saving message of Jesus. For the believer, there are warnings against walking in the flesh and being entrapped by sin or entangled by sin. There are warnings about grieving the Spirit of God's prompting in your life. There are warnings about being seduced by the culture and walking in the ways of the world. There are warnings about being drawn into the claims of false teachers. And there are warnings about false worship. But it's warnings for the believers. And they're only a handful. If you're not a follower of Jesus, or have never accepted Christ as your saviour, there are dire warnings for you. Dire warnings. Warnings concerning your eternal state. Warnings concerning the coming judgment that is assured about your soul. And the letter of Jude extensively warns, particularly against the heresy of false teachers. The trademarks of these teachers are, are clearly outlined. Uh, these teachers are ones who pervert God's grace and are more interested in feeding themselves. They follow their own sinful desires. They cry from the rooftops uh, with boasting and arrogance. And they're given to corruption and favoritism. But more concerning is the false teachers, the gospel they preach is false. And a false gospel provides no hope and leads to destruction. So, as we open this letter, I'll ask you some questions. It's always good as you open a letter, maybe for the first time. Who, where was the last time you read through the letter of Jude? Yeah, five minutes ago, <laughs> right? But the time before that. It's not a common place we go, so there's some questions we need to ask as we unpack the context of, of why Jude is warning these believers. So firstly, who is Jude? Who is the author of the letter? Well, verse 1 tells us, firstly, he's a servant of Jesus Christ, or, a, or doulos is the word there, or a slave of Christ, and the brother of James. 
And uh, so that tells us a little about who Jude is. Um, we know who James is. He's, he's written in God's Word as well. We know James was Jesus' brother. So Jude is uh, one of Jesus' earthly brothers. We think he's probably the third or fourth uh, brother of Joseph, uh, son of Joseph and Mary, brother of Jesus. So that's the author. And who did, Jude, uh, who did Jude write this letter to? Look at the word of God again. To those who are called, to those who are beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So he doesn't address the people to whom he's writing by name. He doesn't address them by location. He just addresses them by three characteristics. And the three characteristics are they are called, they're called by God as part of God's divine plan upon this earth. That's generally what calling means. They are beloved. What a wonderful term that is, right, for those who are believers. You are beloved in God the Father. You are loved by God the Father. That's an incredible, intimate title, to be beloved by God. So they're called, they're beloved by God, and the next one is they're kept for Jesus Christ. And this is a beautiful term as well. Because to be kept is to be kept safe from harm. It's to preserve it. It expresses the watchful care given to somebody. You know, the most pertinent picture I have of that is the mother nursing and tending a baby. There's this lovely expression of watchful care over a child. And the emphasis here is it's not just a one-off type process. It's an ongoing, continuing, watchful care. Isn't that tremendously encouraging for you who belong to the Lord? You are called for his purposes you are beloved by God and you are kept. It's interesting, isn't it? Because in today's age, in this world and where we have all the social re-engineering and all the emphasis on things that are so anti-Christian, we, we sort of view that we're in a really hostile place with our faith. And yet, in this ancient letter of Jude, he's addressing these same types of hostilities 
that these folks are facing. And from it, the natural question arises, amidst all the turmoil of our times, how can one hope to make it through? Right? Do you think about that sometimes? When you see the chaos around about us and you see the, the constant bombardment upon what we believe and how we act, you say, how can we get through? Has the promised future with Christ been held up like a carrot only to be whipped away as, as we struggle forward and, and perhaps stumble? Is, is, is it like that? And in this very verse, in this very address to these folks, the answer is an emphatic no. I praise God for that. The answer is an emphatic no because God not only began my Christian life, he called me, but he also is protecting me. He's keeping me. He himself guards us and helps us to be safe in the hostile age. Take great encouragement in that. So that's who Jude is writing to, the called, the beloved, and the kept. And what is the key message of this letter? What is the key thing he wants to impress upon these folks? We find that in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. So he had another purpose. He wanted to write to them about what they enjoyed together about salvation. But I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that once was for all delivered to the saints. So the key message and he's urging them to contend for the faith. Is that a message we need to hear today? I believe so, right? Yes, we're in a hostile world where we have many things that are imposing upon us in this culture. Let's contend for the faith. To contend means to struggle for. To contend for is to exercise great effort and exertion for something. If you want a prime example of that, look at the last 10 minutes of this morning's game. No, I won't go there. But it's a, it's a battle. Effort and exertion are required. Struggle is required. The word contend that is used here in the original is, is used um, often in the, in the imagery of athletic contests and the struggle and the effort for athletes in their games. Now imagine right now there's lots of struggle going on because the Melbourne Marathon's on this morning, Right? And uh, I think they started at 7 o'clock. What have we got now? It's 10.30. Three and a half hours into the race. There's going to be some struggle and exertion for people. But right here, Jude is using this instruction. I want you to contend. Press on. 
press on. And he's asking them to contend for the faith. So therefore, by association, you must know your faith well. Right? It must be well known to all. If you want to contend for something, what are you contending for? You're contending for the faith and you need to know your faith well. And faith should discern falsehood and lies. So, you know, that's a little bit of a challenge for us, right? If we want to contend for the faith, we need to know the faith well. How well do you know the tenets of your faith in Christ? And how does that bridge across into everyday life? And that's a whole subject that we'll start developing in January. Because that's an important thing to consider. In the context of this letter, why are they instructed to contend for the faith? And we get that in verse 4. We get it in verse 4 and uh, he gives us the reason. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Kind of surprising. We can take from the context of the letter here that Jude is writing to a church, to a group that is gathered together, And there's some folks that have crept in unnoticed. Have become part of the community. Have become part of the fellowship. But he doesn't say, some, he doesn't say very nice things about this contingent. He gives four charges against these people. Firstly, the scriptures condemn them. The NIV is very helpful in verse 4, and it says this, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. So scriptures have condemned them, the type of people they are. Secondly, they are they're godless and unholy. Thirdly, they change God's grace into license and immorality. And most severely, the fourth accusation against them is that they deny Christ. They deny Jesus, who is the sovereign Lord and Saviour. And you think and you scratch your head, you say... How have they not recognized that amongst themselves? Why this warning? Why have they not recognized that they have in their midst leaders who are like this? It's not an unusual phenomena. You go back to, uh, to Acts Acts uh, chapter 20, 
Paul gives this instruction to the, the Ephesian elders. Upon our leaving there, verse 28, pray careful attentions to yourselves and to all the flock into which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that uh, for these three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. So Paul knew it. Jude knows it. Second part of Second Peter, Peter also warns against this type of false teaching that can creep in. And Jude very much is saying, take heed of who's among you. And then for uh, the next part of this book from verse 5 through to verse 16, there's a lot of metaphors used or picture language used to describe what these people are like. Verses 5 to 7, he uses three Old Testament examples. The generation in the wilderness that wandered with Moses who, who died and were judged before they saw the promised land. He uses the fallen angels who fell from heaven with Lucifer. And then he uses Sodom and Gomorrah. And all these three examples in verses 5 to 7 are really just saying judgment will come. Judgment will be there. Judgment will be borne out upon this wickedness. And in verse 8, he, he moves and says, yet in like manner these people. So who's he referring to? He's referring to the ones he referred to further back in verse 4, the ones that have crept in unnoticed. These people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So another description of the false teachers. They defile the flesh. Well, firstly, they rely on dreams. And the reference here to dreams means that these individuals were, were claiming divine revelation as the basis of their practice. Either because of visions given them uh, in some form of superior status in general or because the content of their visions was a rival revelation. So they rely on their dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject and disregard authority, and they blaspheme the celestial beings or God's messengers. So once again, it's a description of the type of false teachers these, these people are. And then he dives in and gives three further Old Testament examples of the plight of those who are false teachers. He talks about um, 
the way Michael contended, the archangel Michael contended for the body of Moses and how he did not blaspheme the devil but left it over to the Lord to rebuke him as a, as a counter to what these false teachers were doing and, and blaspheming the glorious ones. And then in verse 11, he, he talks about the fact that these false teachers are like Cain. They, they walk in the way of Cain. Now, what does it mean to walk in the way of Cain? If you go back to Genesis 3, you will see if you walk in the way of Cain, you hate your brother. Why? You murder him. So these false teachers had no concern for the flock, only concern for themselves. And then they, another example that's given is they walk in the era of Balaam. So naturally that asks, well, what was Balaam's error? And to find out Balaam's error, you need to go back to Numbers chapter 22. Um, firstly, on the one hand, he refuses to curse Israel for money. But on the other hand, um, in Deuteronomy 23, Balaam is presented as one who's being hired to curse. Uh, but the Lord turned that curse into a blessing. Right throughout Jewish history, they attribute Balaam's error to greed. And not only greed, there's, there's one thing that really stands out. I'll read this for you in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. Numbers 25, 1 says this. When Israel lived in Shittim, the, place, uh, the, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab, these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peror and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. It's a historical snapshot of what happened to Israel at Shittim. It's uh, quite a descriptive town name really, isn't it? And they followed after Baal. Why? If you read a little bit further on in Numbers 31, 16, it says this, Behold, these, and that these refers to the nation of Israel, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peror. And so the plague came upon and among the congregation of the Lord. So Balaam's influence over the nation was to cause them to idol worship. So you can see the context here when, when Jude talks about these false teachers, how they have aligned themselves with Balaam's era. They were greedy and they were preaching a false gospel. Serious stuff. Not only that, they will perish in Korah's rebellion. You know, Korah, the sons of Korah, what do they do? 
they disputed the authority of Moses. It's one of the things they did. They verbally challenged the authority and status of Moses and Aaron. And we know what happened to them. The ground opened up and they were swallowed. A fairly visible representation of sinning against the Lord's anointed, right? You know, Korah was destroyed and what Jude does here is he prophetically applies this to the false teachers of the day. And he says, okay, it's going to be the same for you. The ground may not open up, but your destination is a place of eternal torment and judgment. So once again, it's just a description of what these false teachers are doing. And the time we get down to verses 12 and 13, we can see the impact that the false teachers will have on the community. They are shepherds who feed themselves. They are waterless clouds. They are fruitless trees. These are all imageries. They're, they're uprooted. They're, they're of no value. They're like wild foaming in waves, engulfing, being engulfed in their own shame. They're like wandering stars. And then verse 14 to 16 just highlights the fact that they will be judged. There's a lot more to it than that, but that's the overview. So then at the end of the letter, we have a wonderful contrast. The start of the letter says, contend for the faith because you've got a whole bunch of false teachers amongst you who are rotten to the core. That's my translation. Rotten to the core who will be judged. But then you get to these wonderful verses in verse 17 and you see this wonderful contrast statement. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, but... You, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire and uh, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the, the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless for the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So how for Jude a to combat such teachers? Jude provides four really valuable lessons here, practical lessons. The first one is to build ourselves up in the faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? 
we need to know the teachings of Christ. We need to know the teachings of the apostles as recorded in the scriptures. We need to be understanding that scripture is there to train us in righteousness. The scripture is sharper than any two-edged sword. And he equips us for every good work. So in essence, to be built up in the faith, God's word must be central in our lives. Understanding who Christ is and what he has done must be central in our lives. Understanding that salvation is in Christ alone. By faith alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone. These are key things. To understand that Christ was fully God and fully man. The mystery of the incarnation. That he was born a virgin, that he died a criminal's death and on the third day rose again. These are bedrock things of our faith that properly understood enable us to stand against error. Enable us to pinpoint false teaching. So firstly, practical lesson, build yourself up in the faith. What part of your daily routine is reading and reflecting on God's word? A simple, practical takeout, right? For me to understand my faith, I need to be in the book. I need to be concerned about prayer, disciplines of input of God's word and disciplines of prayer in my own personal life. You know, who finds it hard here to pray regularly? Yeah. Biggest challenge in a marriage is to pray together. And it's a discipline you need to each out the time. Young people, as, as, as you are so busy with so many things, how much time do you have to invest in the things of God? Ask God to develop in you a heart and desire to, to understand his word. To be dependent before him in prayer and to seek his will in your life. Secondly, pray under the, under the direction and influence of the Holy Spirit. By doing this, we are trusting that the Spirit intercedes for us, which is promised in Romans chapter 8. By seeking the Spirit's help, we are being led by the Spirit, and when you're led by the Spirit and when you keep in step with the Spirit, you bear fruit of the Spirit. You bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, patience, self-control. And that fights against false teaching. So firstly, we build ourselves in the faith. Secondly, we pray on the direction and the influence of the Holy Spirit. 
Thirdly, we keep ourselves in God's love. How do we keep ourselves in God's love? By living in, by faith and obedience to the promises of God. When we love God, we keep his commandments. It's never the other way around. We don't keep his commandments and then try and love God. The thing that instills within our hearts is the, the fact of what Christ has done for us. That's the thing that fuels the affections of the heart above everything else. And what Christ has done for us, when that is fueling our heart, then that pours out in keeping in obedience the commands of Christ. So when we love God, our affections are uh, stirred up and will display love to others because of our love for him. Fourthly, wait for the mercy of our Lord that brings eternal life. This is incredible. Christ will return. Christ will return. This is our hope, and this infuses our life with expediency, right? Our life is only a, only a, a, a whisper of time, a short and momentary time on this earth. Let's live with the expectancy that Christ will return. And in the interim, do all that Jesus expects of us to do before his glorious return. And finally, we show mercy to those who doubt. That's the call to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith our own personal disciplines enables us to pray under the influence of the Spirit to keep ourselves in God's love, to wait for the mercy of our Lord and to show mercy to those who doubt. And then we have the final wonderful bit of encouragement. Who is with us through this process? Who is with us? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. What incredible words. Even though we fumble and stumble along, there is one who has walked before us and who is going to present us as blameless The only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Folks, this week stand firm and contend for the faith.